Hi, this is a podcast for the best bits of the Breakfasters. Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Triple R. Double Lives, Shocking Secrets, Buried Scandals is how SBS describes the return season of its documentary series, Every Family Has a Secret. And joining us, end of the show's premiere tomorrow night, we're joined by host and Australian screen legend, Noni Hazelhurst. Noni, welcome back to Breakfasters. Hello, Breakfasters. Nice to <laughs> you. Um, we, we spoke to you about season one. What did you learn from season one and how how is that adapted or reflected in uh, what's brought to screen this year? Well, I think we we learned, and it was re- we had the notion reinforced that every family does have a secret. Um, <laughs> you know that that there's a, an appetite, I think, also for real human stories, uh, for reality as as we live it, rather than reality as seems to be defined by the notion of reality at the moment. Um, <laughs> these are real people, and the, the stakes are very high for them. And it's it's really a, a connecting sort of program. It's because they're fellow human beings and you see them being vulnerable and, and moved by what they're going through. It's impossible not to empathise with them. And I think in these days of, you know, such divisive times, it's really lovely to, to see something where people are connecting. And so I think SBS, you know, did so well. People really responded to the first season. So SBS brought us back for an SBS version of a series, which is three episodes. So mm. we're very, very grateful. But there, there, so there are six Australians, um, mm-hmm. and we learn their stories. And I, I suppose the the question that comes to mind is, how do you find these people? How do we know? Because there's obviously something about them that they don't know, but that mm. could potentially be interesting. So, can you take us behind yeah. the curtain a little bit? Yeah, sure. Well, I, I mean, I don't do the research uh, in the first series. I think it was pretty much friends and family members, you know, and and um, colleagues that that were mined for. Secrets because obviously it wasn't a, a tested program. Uh, I think after the first season, other people came forward, and and I think um, if we're lucky enough to get a third season, we'll have no shortage of takers because yeah. you know it is amazing when you scratch the surface how many people have holes in their family stories that they just don't know about or no one will talk about or you know something that's haunted them. Your your role on the show is quite unique because it's a challenging hosting role you're dealing with people you're sitting down with people who are talking about extraordinary sometimes life or family traumas mm. they're often often initially like I, I watched the the first episode of this season and mm. they're quite emotionally kind of buttoned up and it's your job to both empathize but also get them to communicate these really great stories in their life how do you approach that how do you tackle that as a host well look I feel I sort of know something about what they're going to discover but not everything because sometimes they don't discover everything until they're out on the road um and I have a list of questions that I've been given that they want to kind of hit the points you know the scripts are roughly written before we start they have to be to sort of organize everything and schedule everything um so My job really, I guess, because a lot of them know me from play school or television or whatever, they they kind of just chat to me and and my job is to hold their hand basically and and help because, you know, to to not only find out all this stuff but to go on television to find this out is pretty daunting when you're not, you know, you're not a, a television person. So my job is really just to help them to relax in the first instance and not feel self-conscious or as much as possible in front of the crew, even though it's only a small crew and they're incredibly kind and and caring, you know, it's really daunting and and it takes a lot of courage for people. So I I sort of have a, and I, and I can empathize because I was lucky enough to have an episode of who do you think you are? And the stuff that I found out that, you know, was found out about about my family was just mind boggling and, and, very emotional, you know, so I understand how these people feel to some extent. Um, but, you know, yeah, it is, we just chat and I know, you know, that we'll have an hour chat which will be edited down to about three minutes. So it's a fairly wide-ranging talk and and apart from the questions that I know they want me to hit, the producers, I, I also just let the talk unfold and, and it's, you know, you just have to be in the moment and be present with the people and that's that's why I enjoy it, I guess. Um, last time you were on and in the first season you talked about how forgiveness played a, a pretty significant role in the first season. Mm. Uh, would you agree that it's still the same for the second season? 
It depends on the story. Um, in some instances, yes, definitely. But I think, you know, mostly the reasons why people keep things secret are about shame or guilt, um, and and that implies judgment by other people. Um, and so I think when you illuminate for our subjects what might have driven those people to keep those secrets, it does allow for forgiveness, you know, because when, when you feel someone's kept something from you, there's a sort of sense of abandonment that, that's there, whether it's conscious or unconscious. But to understand what drove people to, to keep those secrets, and, you know, we, we all make decisions based on what we thought best at the time, and often that's wrong in retrospect. So, you know, it's, it's easier to forgive when you know the circumstances, and that's what I think is so interesting about some of these stories, that, you know, the, the, there's one in particular, I think, in the first episode with Marie O'Connor from Perth, who was always mm. told nothing about her father except that he was a bad man. Mm. And and when you learn, you know, the circumstances surrounding her birth, you you just empathise with her mother um, so much, you know, and then she goes on this journey of discovery which literally changes her life. Um, we also meet a 75-year-old daughter of a Holocaust survivor who mm. says that having gone through the journey that um, – this the show brings her on that she formerly felt like a shadow and now feels as though she's in colour. Now that's obviously an incredibly moving and effective positive result, but Mm. is there any ethical concern? Are are you ever worried like, Oh gee, maybe this is a better that bygones are bygones or this day buried with, you know, is is that a part of the, the tension of the show that makes it compelling? Well, I think so, because you're always going, how would I feel in this situation? You know, how, how would I react to this information? Um, and, and we've always been very careful to um, take care of, of the, the subjects because, you know, it, it is potentially quite confronting to find out some of the things we find out. But they all, to a person, say they don't regret going on the journey, even if the outcome is, you know, not beer and Skittles. Um, sometimes the outcome is, is quite harsh and hard to take. But I think they're all grateful to have that kind of hole filled to some extent. It's not closure because you never get closure and often it, it asks more questions than it answers. But I think they do feel a sense of a weight lifting just to know the truth mm. uh, or to know more of the truth than they did before. And we, we get to see Australians travelling. Yeah, period piece now. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's really interesting, isn't it? Everything, everything that's um, got interaction is now a period piece instantly. But, yeah, we, we managed to get most of the filming done before lockdown. We had to still do some of the narration um, after that, which which was a, a challenge, but we managed to, to pull it mm. off. And, and without giving too much away, is there a story in this series where you get to learn not just about the people but maybe an aspect of history, world history or Australian history that you found really illuminating? Look, in every story there's something like that. Um, you know, there's always those little historical breakout moments where you do learn some of the context and, uh, if, of, you know, what was happening to people at the time. Uh, there's one story certainly I think it's the third episode, but I'm not totally sure, um, where one uh, one man has lived in Paris for many years in exile really from Australia because his father was suspected of being a communist spy in the 50s. And so Paul, as a seven-year-old, I think, uh, his family had to move to China. And, and then when he was 14, they moved to Russia. Um, and he always blamed Australia for sort of hounding his parents. And to find out the, the history of the Communist Party and how, you know, in the 50s it was the Petrov affair where the Petrovs were, were um, sent out of Australia for spying and the whole Reds under the bed period, you know, I didn't know a lot of that in detail. So it really does illuminate, you know, that, that kind of, um, oh, God, scare tactics, you know, and, and uh, how dramatic it was at the time. You hear about these things but you don't necessarily know the impact on, on people. And so mm-hmm. to have someone who was there and who lived through it and, you know, when he was seven, he had to learn Chinese and go to a Chinese school. And when he was 14, he had to learn Russian and go to a Russian school. And he's had this incredibly checkered life um, where, you know, he wants to know the truth about his dad. And, 
it's it's quite revealing. Yeah, well, we're very fragile in Melbourne, and it's a it's, a, it's, it's quite an emotionally raw show to have to watch in lockdown. Um, but yeah, we recommend it highly. Season two of the SBS observational documentary series "Every Family Has a Secret" uh, launches tomorrow night. Uh, Tuesday, 22nd of September at 7.30 on SBS. Noni Hazelhurst, thanks so, so much again. Thank you very much. Good to talk to you. Triple R. Geraldine Hickey here coming to you live from regional Victoria, land of the free, home <laughs> of the up yours, Melbourne. Sorry, you still have to stay inside. No. <laughs> Not that at all. Um, it really is truly the land of the brave after that comment. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what an asshole! I'm sorry. Um, I'll take that back. Um, but no. I do um, obviously, uh, being in regional Victoria, have a few more uh, things that I'm allowed to do in my day, um, including uh, travel with no restriction. Oh. It's it's the nicest sentence you can hear, isn't it? Like, oh I, yeah. Um, I, I found it really nice. I talked about this last, you know, the um, analogy for living in regional Victoria. It's like, um, and I'll repeat it again, but it's like we're at a, you go to a cafe with a friend and the waiter comes over and says, hey, we've got this cake. Would you like it? And you go, yes, of course, we love cake. But then your friend realises, oh, they're not allowed to eat cake because they're on some weird fasting thing. And they go, no, you eat the cake. You eat the cake. You're like, I don't want to eat the cake. And if you can't eat the cake, I don't want to eat the cake in front of you. But, yeah, you should, you should, but you want to eat the cake. And your friend's going, no, I want to watch you eat the cake because it will give me joy to watch you eat the cake. And that is what it's like to live in regional Victoria at the moment. It is, except if someone who can't eat the cake, it doesn't give me joy, but I want you to eat the cake. Mm. Yeah. Just, but to, other, yeah. just to fix that up a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, but that's no, a, I am. It's I'm an happy. individual thing. Uh, some people do say, say that. It's like, do no, they? it gives me joy to watch you, like, go outside. Oh, mate, yes, it's had – but I'm – I would be more like you, Sarah. It would not bring me joy, <laughs> but I would be very happy for but you. I'm very too. happy for you. I am. I do. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very yeah. happy. Yeah. In this in this scenario, I'm basically a feeder. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, eat that cake. I'm watching yeah. you. <laughs> And maybe actually we're going to go yeah. home and secretly eat cake anyway. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we, um, so on on the weekend we went to the we went to a market in Foster. Um, oh, market. Yeah, and it was so great. It was like it's this tiny little market, and it was all you know outdoors, you know, and it was just it was perfect. It was just like we got there quite late, so most things had sold out. Didn't matter. We were just. Out and about, you know, got a coffee from a coffee cart. It was like, oh, it's just oh. heaven. Um, and I met up with uh, Grace and JC. Grace is our, you know, works at Triple R, uh, who lives in Foster. And um, very proud to announce that they are our bubble buddies. Oh. Oh. Yeah. But you don't need bubble buddies. Yeah, we do. Yeah, yeah. Really? Bubble buddies are like in, it's so. There's only um, you just choose one household that you're allowed to go to. Uh-uh. So yeah, you can't just like we can travel that restriction, but we can't just go and visit whoever we want. We can only visit, yeah, the, uh-huh. limiting it to to one household. So you have a yeah, you have bubble buddies. So they are our bubble buddies, and it was so exciting. We didn't think that. Um, it, they choose us like we they were our only choice because they're pretty much the only people we know um in you know in our close enough that we could go and visit um so and it was funny like I'd I think I'd gone to put something in the bin and I came back and Kath was like they said yes and realised that we were asking, oh, my God, that's going to go, yay. Um, so uh, we have our bubble buddies, So and it was great. So And to celebrate, we went to a cidery that's just out of Foster, mm. and then we did a cider tasting. It's like you're talking about a fantasy land, it's another like, planet. It, it's a, That's exactly what it feels like. Oh. It was, yeah, and it was so just even like – planning the day just going oh we'll go to the market and then like driving because we drove past the side and we're like oh that's open now maybe we could maybe go and do a you know 
go and drink some salt. And like they're just doing tastings and there's, you know, you can't, they're not doing food or service and stuff. So it's not like you could just sit outside and drink a cider, but it was like, it didn't matter. Like it was so just, yeah, it was just so great just driving in and it's. Daniel looks like he's in an ad for <laughs> memory medication or something. His eyes were closed. He looked like a wistful into the distance. Cider tasting with a bubble buddy. So much yes. pleasure on that oh. face. It is actually, you know, you know, I've got to admit, I take it back. It is giving me pleasure hearing you talk about this. It's like being able to vicariously live through your experience of what the future might hold. Yeah, but do you remember, like, you've been to a, ta- like, when you drive in and it's, like, obviously in a beautiful landscape and you look across and there's, oh. you know, the... Obviously, there was apple orchards there and it was just, you know, and you kind of sit down and the person giving you the taste, you're here for a tasting, yes, please, nothing else we can be here for. So, yeah, love a tasting. And then you go, oh, I'll just go through them all with you and you drink everyone and everyone you go, oh, that's nice, oh, that's nice. And then at the end you go, which, you know, we'll buy some bottles, but I can't remember which ones were which. I can't remember which ones I really like the most. I should. This is why you got to take notes at a tasting. This is, I disagree with it. We're like, oh, yeah, that is nice. I like that that too and oh no don't just you know and then you know buying you know spending too much money nah didn't spend enough actually I could have gotten more but was just like and then but walking away going I haven't drunk cider since I was in my 20s like why am I getting so much cider but who cares it was great Mm. do you feel like uh, an obligation to not say no to anything now which is what what I sense it will be like when we come out in that if you get offered a drink or food or whatever it is because it's in this new exciting circumstance. I wouldn't want to say yeah. no to anything. What, you don't want to say no? No. You know, if someone goes, oh, do you want another drink? I'd be like, yes, I haven't been oh. able to do this. You want another yeah. drink? Oh, yes. You want to say Worried hi? About yes. Overindulging or overcommitting. And- yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm worried about the COVID-15. Uh, mm. Like the 15 kilos or, you know, whatever it's called. Oh, that, it's, uh, a, uh, it's a thing. Because people are putting on weight. Is that the average amount we're putting on? <laughs> so, so, uh, the COVID-15 and then restrictions are lifted and it's like the corona 30, 45. I mean, totally. it's like, you know, it last drinks at the brewery. No. We can embrace so, yes. it. We should embrace it. You know, what the, you know the numbers are 11 today. Are they? They're yeah. just out. Yeah. They're oh, yeah. How positive. Yeah, so, you know, I'd, I'd like to think that I'm giving you a glimpse of your not-too-distant future and the things you'll be you'll be able to do. I think you truly are. Thank you, Geraldine. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. It's time for our Wednesday Wisecracker where we check in with local comedians in lockdown and it's a very good morning to Scout Boxall. Morning, Scout. Morning. Thanks for having me back. Of course. Pleasure. I mean, my yeah. God, it's, it's a pleasure. <laughs> what have you been up to? Sorry. Um, I think I think I've now seen you guys like like more than more than many of my friends, which is lovely. <laughs> so you're now at the top of the pecking order of acquaintances Thank that you. I've been forging relationships with online. Yeah, that's lovely. An honor. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I'm doing I'm doing pretty well. Um, I've reached that. Uh, I've reached that point in lockdown where um, just Facebook memories are just like uh, really getting me. Uh, so like last this time last year, I was closing out my show at Fringe, which was like the best two weeks of my life. And then last night, I had to like clean my new PlayStation Four controller of the corticosteroid cream that I now use on my hands to deal with the chronic eczema I have. <laughs> From the long-term stress. <laughs> so. It's quite a come down. Yeah. Yeah. But on the plus side, I am now at level 12 on Fortnite. Catch <laughs> <laughs> me getting a custom avatar soon. I like, I figured out how to do the dance online and everything. It's pretty wild. Um, I've been playing a lot of Red Dead Redemption because I just think it's nice while we're in like one of the toughest lockdowns in the world to be able to kill with impunity. So (laughs) I've just been absolutely devastating the small uh, New Haven town of Blackwater and Valentine. I have two horses that I'm, 
on really good terms with. So we're like really forging that relationship. And I just bought myself a new pair of arseless chaps from the general store. I'm, I mean, I could, I guess you could say I'm actually really thriving. I'm really thriving (laughs) in cowboy form. Uh, I've bought myself a a bolo tie. I've ordered myself a bolo tie to wear in real life, just so I can capture some of that joy and dopamine in the real world. Do your horses have names? They do. Thanks for asking, Jez. So one of them is called Patch. She's a little rascal. Um, uh, She's not very fast, but she's got a heart of gold. And then the other one is called, uh, what's what's he called again? He's called like Tennessee Walker, which is the default name, but I just thought it really fitted with that particular brown stallion. So... um, (laughs) He's gorgeous. I've got a custom-made saddle horn for him, uh, which he loves. Huge fan. Um, and I've even braided his little mane, so that's nice. Um, yeah, I'm really thriving. I'm really doing well, guys. Uh, yeah, I'm really coping with everything right now. We've got, got two horses. Yeah, doing really good. There's a push to have Fortnite in the Olympics. Would you be in favour of that? Um, I totally would be in favor of it. I, I think it's a great team building and cooperative exercise. Um, now that I have the steroids on my hands, I'm actually just trying to, it's not even for the X, I'm just trying to bulk up really <laughs> I'm just trying to get the most jacked hands in existence. So again, I can just like do finger guns and actually kill people with them. <laughs> but I think it definitely should be in the Olympics. I wouldn't be in the Olympic team, obviously, as a mere level 12 player. I'd probably be like the water boy, just like bringing them. I don't know if you guys have ever played, but there's like this cool thing you can do where like you splash your teammates with like essentially soda and it gives them shield points. So that's it's just, just a little. That'd be you just flicking soda on people. Literally, I just want to get uh, like a water water cannon and just go to the next contact sport that I'm allowed at and just just spray people. <laughs> See, oh, <God>. <laughs> what else has uh, the the lockdown uh, spurred for you? Do you think? Um, well, I I'm actually trying to. I I think I think lockdown's interesting at this point because I think everyone started off. I think in Melbourne in particular, everyone was kind of like people, people thought of Dan Andrews as like this bit, like a bit of a, a bit of a daddy figure. They were like, you know, like most romantic interests, he's just raw potential far outstripped his actual performance, I guess. But like during the first bit of COVID, he was like this, you know, lovely, lovely guy. And he was in a, he was in a North face jacket and he was a family man. And he was slightly left to center. Um, and he, you know, he was, and we were kind of like, we were like, oh my God, don't punish me. No. Like, oh my God, you're going to lock me up in my eight person share house with all my mates and all of their partners for $1,500 a fortnight with no mutual obligation. <laughs> but please, oh my goodness. But now the second wave after we were all little brats and we licked our friends' faces, <laughs> hand, like all the fruit at Woolies and having an orgy in a meat works. <laughs> Like he was less of a daddy and more of a dad, and we didn't like. Like it's like, you know, he got, we got to fifteen or sixteen, and then we realised actually he's a human being and he's very flawed and complicated. <laughs> <laughs> but we yeah. still live in his house, and now we're grounded. So. Sure. Uh, but this, tell us about, uh, you know, like has the pandemic j- given rise to the 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 video game? passion or has it always been there and it's just come to the fore lately? I think I like I as a kid I wasn't allowed to my parents were fairly strict in that I wasn't allowed to play video games or watch shows that weren't educational so then I had to then make uh, an oral argument and a written submission as to why a game that I wanted to watch was educational so I did that for the sims because I said that was like budgeting and family planning and then um I did that for age of mythology and age of empires because I said it was about history and then I uh the first game that I managed to get across the line with my 
Arbiter Parents was um, Carmen Sandiego, Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego? And the follow-up in 1999, Where in Time is Carmen Sandiego? Because not only is she an international traveller, she is also an interdimensional (laughs) and intertemporal traveller, which is very hot in my humble opinion. And I largely credit her with my being gay. So. <laughs> that's fair. Um, right she's just elusive and she wears a nice jacket and you can never yeah. find her and she's just leaving you clues <laughs> to try and find her you can just never hold her close but she's there she's just lingering <laughs> but I actually throughout lockdown uh I've got myself into a kind of a Christian marriage with uh someone that I went on several hinge dates with in the two weeks of freedom uh who is uh who is a local artist and a musician and um we actually wrote a song called um International Woman of Mystery which is like an ode to Carmen San Diego um, and just, just trying to, just trying to let her know that I still love her. She still has wow. a special place in my heart after all these years. I happen to have that song right here, Scout Boxer. Would you like me to play it for the people? Yeah, it's going to get radio play. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible. Go off. Go on, Sarah. Triple R. The feature creatures this week, entomologist Simon Hinckley joins us to talk bugs. G'day, Simon. Good morning, everybody. I'm so sorry that I call you Bugman and then Daniel respects you by calling you an entomologist. No, no, it's all good. Bugman's good. Okay, all right. I just realised then I was like, it was really highlighted as I was like, coming up next (laughs) hour. No, you're. Uh, it, I don't. I don't want to bring it up. It doesn't matter. I was just. I'm still shaken by your trivia story. <laughs> I, I, I think I'd, I'd tried to big you up to uh, not uh, not only because you deserve it, but to to underscore your authority. If there are any museum people listening who were there last night, they'll know who they are and they'll know what they did wrong. Right. So yeah. <laughs> Uh, what are, what are we talking about this week? So this week we're going to talk about um, mimicry, which might sort of send a few people hurtling back to school if you were taught taught about um, Batesian or Mullerian mimicry at school. But so I guess we all know in the insect world um, camouflage. So I mean the obvious thing, for example, is a stick insect, where if you don't want to get eaten, you pretend you're a stick. It's a great strategy. But we're looking at the sort of more complex things where species pretend to be other species rather than just sort of camouflaged inert objects. So with Batesian mimicry, what you have is you have um, the insect in question that has a defence strategy. So in this example, we'll just use a bee or a wasp. So it has it's something that has a sting or a venom or whatever. That's the model. And then the mimic is a different species that resembles that species and so sort of gets protection for free. So in a way, it's almost like a parasite because there's no benefit to the model, the insect that actually has the defence strategies. And it also relies on what's called uh, a post-dematic coloration. So that is insects or, or animals in general that have a really strong defence strategy. And rather than hiding like the stick insect, they go, look at me, I'm really brightly coloured. So I'm not going to bother to hide. I'm telling you that I'm here. And that means I've got really good defences, whether or not it's venom, spines, uh, whatever the case may be. So <clears throat> the problem, though, that well, there's a, a significant problem with Batesian mimicry. So I'm going to put you on the spot and sort of see if you can see a flaw in the strategy. So you've got the model, which has a defence strategy, and you've got this other species that is edible but is pretending to be the model. Can you see where that might go wrong or how that might not work for all parties? Yeah, the one that's edible will, will get eaten. No. It does, and you, you, you're right, it does actually. And what, what's important is the population balance. So if you've got, for example, picture your backyard, you've got one model, so in this case one European wasp showing bright uh, yellow and black coloration, and you've got a whole lot of hoverflies, which are completely edible and coloured to resemble the wasp. So you've got one wasp and 50 flies. Predator oh. arrives, the oh. odds are it's going to get a tasty bug. So it just keeps eating bugs until it gets the one one that has a sting, by which time it's eaten most of the um, the insects. So what you need for Batesian mimicry to work is you need a good population balance. You need more of the things with stings 
than things without stings. So the predator gets to learn very quickly what colours to avoid. Ah. So if the population gets out of whack, everybody loses. But there are some really ingenious strategies to get around that. One thing that you can do is have the models with the defence come out first. So the bees and the wasps emerge first, new predators arrive, get stung, learn the lesson. Then the mimics that resemble them emerge and they've already got that inherent protection because the predators have learnt. Another strategy is to have um, to have the mimics be a smaller size. So the predator comes along, sees a big yellow and black insect and a small yellow and black insect. If it hasn't been stung before, it's going to go big, and that's when it's going to get stung and avoid that sort of coloration. So there's a number of strategies around it. One of the really, and it also doesn't rely just on coloration. There's um, a really great strategy you would all know that uh, bats are out at night hunting for moths and moths are also coming up with their strategies to avoid being eaten. So the moths can actually, some species of moth can detect the bats' um, sonar sounds, the clicking sounds they make to detect the insects. And some of the moths are very distasteful, as in the toxins they've fed on as larvae have built up in the body. And what the moths do is they produce a sound that says to the bat, I'm here and I taste disgusting. So awesome. that's avoid that species of moth. But then there are other species of moth that go, well, hey, I'll produce the same sound even though I'm really, really tasty. So that's a Batesian mimicry using sound rather than colour. So really clever strategies. And it's how sort of like it, a – Can I ask, how does a yeah. moth know it doesn't taste good? That is the million-dollar question. That's what does my head in. It's, it's, a, it's sort of – it's innate behaviour that it's like us saying a baby is born, how does it – you know, how does it know to go for the breast? How does it know to do this? How does it yeah. know to do that? It's just, they just do it. It's just oh. sort of, it's programmed if you like. So it's a great question though, Sarah, because some of these, some of these things do my head in because it's like, how does that evolve to that point? And it's so yeah. clever for, for an insect that we're saying doesn't think in inverted commas to be able to do this behavior. Um, but it's another great strategy because a lot of the moths will avoid predation by sort of flying really erratically. And of course, that can involve you flying straight into a spider web. Whereas if you're actually just sending out your signals going, I taste bad, bugger off, you know, that's actually a really good strategy. And then very quickly you've got Mullerian mimicry, which is where all of the species taste bad and they've all evolved to have a very similar appearance. So, for example, rather than a predator going out now, hang on, that one with the purple stripes was bad and the red spots wasn't good and the yellow was disgusting – and having to learn on all the different colour variations, you've got a range of different species that all taste bad and they've all evolved to have a, a base a base similar pattern. So a predator very quickly learns, okay, that basic colour pattern is bad and I'm going to avoid. So it saves the predator having to eat disgusting things and also lots of the insects getting eaten as well. Mm. So really amazing strategies that they've come up with. And that's where all of the species are a winner. Whereas with the Batesian, you've got basically freeloading parasite species pretending to be unpleasant. Yeah. As a as a very brief sidebar, Jesse and I were having a discussion about what was scarier, a moth or a spider. And um, Jesse's view, because she got one stuck in her hair, was that moths are scary because they they cr- they're crazy and they move around. And you're that's the mechanism to avoid capture. Ah. Is that what you're saying? It- it can be, and that's a really good question. Um, there are so many people who are terrified of moths, and I think it's that out-of-control flapping sort yes. of thing. Yes, and um, they're, they're fat. Yeah. <laughs> and they're, and they're no, fat. Do you know what I mean? Like there's, meatiness, there's meatiness to them is what I mean. Like anything that has meatiness. A bit of weight to it. Yeah, the weight. Because when it yeah, hits you, a... you're like, jeez. And I think it's the, that's a really good point, Sarah, and it's, and it's the fact that um, for example, one of my colleagues at work is terrified of moths, and she thinks it's because when she was a kid, she was on the top bunk under the light, oh. and she was sort of right up close to the moth that was going crazy because of the light. So it's actually out in the bush at night. They don't sort of fly in that manic fashion, but when you're right close to a light where the moth's going a bit berserk because it's sort of got that um, – it's being influenced by the light to behave in a way that it wouldn't normally do, it does come across as manic – um, and certainly if there's a large meaty insect flapping <laughs> crazily near your head, that's um, it's not great, which there's not that many butterflies where you get into that sort of situation because they're flitting, you know, daintily from flower to flower, whereas the moths are a bit on the manic size. But uh, they're not going to bite your face. So They're not going to bite your weird. face. There is no vampire moth. There's nothing sort of um, – there's nothing terrifying about moths. Um, in fact, there's some – I was actually going to say, if you want to see an amazing um, 
example of Bates' mimicry, Google snake mimic caterpillar. It's a species of moth from South America that is happily munching away on a leaf. If you disturb it, it can inflate its head end and resemble a pit viper. Even to the point of its behaviour, it will it will look to be sort of striking at you. So it's this amazing thing where, and, and as you say, that, harking back to your earlier question, Sarah, I don't know how a caterpillar has evolved to not just look like a pit viper but to know how to imitate the behaviour of striking is yeah. incredible. Are there any other cheeky mimic buggers that you want to run us through? There are, I mean, there's a, a huge amount of, uh, so mimicry can be used for sort of Batesian and Mullerian mimicry. It can also be used um, for getting close to your prey. So, for example, there are some really amazing spiders in Australia that resemble ants. And the, the whole point is if I look like an ant, I can get close to the prey and I can jump on it. Obviously, if I look like a huge spider, the ants are going to move away. So mimicry can be used for getting close to prey um, you've obviously got things like uh, the the moths that have the eye spots on the wings. So you probably all would have seen shots of those, the idea being that the moth is sort of sitting still, something comes in to have a crack at it, and as the moth flicks its wings to take off, one second you're greeted with what looks like a wing, a moth wing, and then as it comes up, the underside has a large eye spot. So you mm. suddenly go, oh, hell, I thought I was going for a moth. There's a huge pair of eyes there. I've actually gone for some owl or something, so I better back off. And in that second, maybe the moth can get away. So there's some really ingenious strategies for um, either camouflage or trying to take on someone else's um, venomness, if that's a word, or also just looking like your prey. It's really, really amazing strategies. You just have to Google um, animal mimicry and you'll see, I mean, you'll see some amazing examples and also in the vertebrate world too. It's, it's an amazing strategy. Yeah. And if nothing else today, at least we've got a new trivia team name for you, large meaty insects. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. (laughs) Victory speech can be, I'm here and I taste disgusting. Um, Okay. All right. Well, Simon Higley, just always fascinating. Thanks heaps. Thank you. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Open the curtains this morning, look out the window. How was is this? Kangaroo. Dude. It's right, it's still there. I'm looking at it right now. There there it is. Having a little chomp on the grass just Great. outside. Could have been a men at work film clip. It could be. Yeah. It could be um Breakfast's twenty twenty life in, in the country. <laughs> I don't know. How many have you seen at that window? Is this the first? This is the first. Um, at the, and but the first at this time of the day, that's for sure, um, because I, I'd, I'd moved um, moved rooms and I used to see it just be able to see them sometimes. Mm. At through, but this is a, a beautiful clear clear view and something else that's really exciting outside this window is the new totem tennis that I bought on the weekend. Oh, I saw a, a picture of you and Kath playing that. Best twelve dollars I've ever spent. Twelve dollars. Yes. But is totem tennis the best? Because I every time I think I see a totem tennis thing, I go, "Awesome, let's play," and then I hit it for maybe forty seconds, and that's and forty wraps, seconds of joy, mate. Wraps around, and then you, if someone hits it too high, and then they're just hitting it to themselves madly around in a circle. Oh and, well. And then you, you go, know what oh, I'm well. hearing? You, you can't play totem tennis. That's what I'm hearing. Is that really what you're yeah. hearing, or are you just on the? Are you getting paid by Big Totem? <laughs> <laughs> what what are the rules? I mean it's 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 exactly just... Daniel, what are the rules? <laughs> <laughs> well, um there are no rules with totem tennis. That's mm. the, that's the joy of it. If you want, you can stand there on your own and just hit a ball backwards and forwards. That's mm. that's fun. And then and then you can um upskill and try it with the other hand. Like yeah. If you're right-handed, try it. Why don't you try it with your left hand? That'll feel in another forty seconds. <laughs> and then um, the other great thing about it is when we got it, Cass was like really into it. And then I said, "Come on, let's let's have a go." Uh, and then like how like you start, I'm like, "What are you doing?" She goes, "Didn't you know this about me that I'm no good at ball sports?" And I'm like, "What?" <laughs> I'm like, well, first of all, you're standing." Like what? She looked like she was terrified of the ball every time it came near her. Mm. Um, and I, w- I said, "You could just take a step back." I think you're just standing too close to the pole. 
therefore it increases your chance of that ball hitting you in yeah. the face. So it is attached to a piece of string. So yeah. you say, yeah, just take a step back. Um, but she she was like, yeah, I, I just I I never liked these types of sports because I think because my she said because my eyesight was always so bad that I could never see the ball coming properly anyway, so mm. I just never and got into it. Another tell is that it's a racket sport, not a ball sport. Yeah. Mm. That's true. Well, it's still balls involved. There's a ball involved, but, you know. It's attached to a piece of string. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you can go flying up and uh, – so, But the, the whole fun, isn't it, that the, the ball does a loop, but if yeah. there's two people playing – it does a, half a loop. It does half a loop and Which it becomes too manic and falls apart instantly. Nah, but here's the, here's the other thing. You know how it's got the, the spiral thing on top, yeah. the coil thing? So you can either choose to have the ball attached to the spinny thing on top so yeah. it just goes around, or if you want a fun game, you attach it to the middle of the coil and if you make it to the top or the bottom, depending on what you choose, then you win. Yeah, I like that. Oh, so the point is that the other person shouldn't be returning. Yeah, no, the, the, the you want it. You want to return it because if you keep whacking it the same way and it does a couple, of, then it's only going to do. You know, only needs to go around about three or four times, and then you and win. One. Oh, because I used to think my sister was just being a drainer when she would come out and pick it up and then just smash it really aggressively around and around. Mm. You know that, that, that player? No, I'd be playing and then she'd go, here, I'll play with you. Then she'd get it and just smash it so that I couldn't, so it'd just be whizzing past my head. Yeah. And yeah. and then go, all right, and walk off. That sounds like fun. Yeah. Oh, That's yeah. I think I you've play. just explained the rules. I think that would be it. Is that, that if, it goes, if it goes up the spiral, the person mm. whose job it is to go up wins. Yeah. And if it finishes down the spiral, the person whose job it is to go down wins. Yeah. But then, then it's like you're not really playing with someone, are you? Because Yes, yes, that's exactly is, what you're doing. The point is to stop the other person from being able to hit it at all. No, that's a different that's a that's just that's a different part of part of it. Like, how else do you get, how else do you get the how do you else you get it up the spiral if the other person's hitting it back down the spiral? So the point would be to hit it so hard that they couldn't return it and get yeah, it. Yeah, that's the point. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. you're aiming to not include the other person in the game. Yeah, well, that's like Tess, you're aiming for them not to yeah. hit the ball back. I mean, yes, but no, you know. That's yeah. fine. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I guess it's it's like footy versus kick to kick, isn't it? Like, you know, one of them it's cooperative and it's like I hit, then you hit, then you hit, and it's the yeah. warm-up, and then yeah. the spiral's the real deal. Yeah, exactly. Mm. A good purchase, 12 bucks. It's worth it. Get on. <laughs> Get on board, and maybe or maybe table tennis. We can get table tennis next, but oh, kangaroo, kangaroo still out there, guys. <laughs> so. Triple R. Anyway, uh, Sarah, yes. how's your baby shower going? Oh, my virtual baby shower. Uh, mm. It's it's so much fun. So. For listeners who weren't listening at 6.15 or whenever we talked about it a week or so ago, um, in lieu of a real deal uh, baby shower, which I can't have obviously because of COVID, uh, some friends and Andrew organised a secret virtual baby shower where every day I get a surprise video from a friend uh, and it's just, you know, wishing me well. Everyone's taken different approaches. I spoke about it last time because some people sent me little drunk videos, others uh, another friend of mine spent a day uh, recording what it's like to be to be the mother of a newborn and a toddler, which was horrifying. Uh, everyone has different kind of takes, and some of them are just really sweet messages. I got one from Jeff Sparrow the other morning, which was very surprising and very earnest and lovely. What, was he earnest? I was going to ask because it was he was long, very he was classic Sparrow. So it was joke, just kidding something heartfelt joke, just kidding, something heartfelt joke. So it had to, you know, it would get too uncomfortable if it was all heartfelt. So, yeah. But yeah. it was much, it was very lovely. Um, and But it's kind of become, it's funny because I've got, I've got a lot of friends who go for Tigers. Just coincidentally, I gather friends who go for the same football team as me. And there's kind of become this like underlying running theme that I've noticed about trying to ensure that the baby becomes a Tiger supporter. So mm. uh. I've kind of mentioned this before that like, 
Andrew's obviously a Collingwood supporter. I'm a Tiger supporter. We decided that the best outcome was that our child hates football because there's probably no peaceful end to this conversation, although everyone just assumes that I'm carrying the child. It's going to be a Tiger cub, which I kind of like. Oh. And last on the weekend, in fact, our program manager, um, Beck Hornsby, sent me a video with her partner, Mindy, both mad tigers. Yeah. I watched last year's grand final with them. And they it was a great video because they got it when I was in the car with Andrew and they kind of turned it on and they had all their tiger gear on, their tiger face masks. You can get like dusty face masks and they had the theme song playing and they're like just you know can't wait to welcome another tiger car but I was playing it to Andrew and I was like check this out uh on tiger Saturday and so that was really fun I said to Andrew I think that's kind of it you know I think it's been just I think this has been decided by the people he's like nah it's not and then um the other actually the other morning I, I walked out and Andrew had his little he has this little stuffed magpie from the 80s that he's had since the 80s so it's this really old school you know little thing and I was like why have you got the stuffed magpie out again because it's currently been sitting in our bedroom and uh then I felt really bad because he it actually was looking up YouTube videos of how to like hold a baby and swaddle a baby and he was practicing on his stuffed on his stuffed oh, magpie Sarah. Oh, Sarah. Oh, don't. does that break your heart because yeah. we don't have any other dolls in the house. And I just oh. thought he was being an idiot. And I'm like, oh, get, what are you doing with this stuff, Magpie? Get it away. And he's like, oh. Uh, I, was just, I was just watching. I was just watching this. this little Magpie. And practicing how to hold it and burp it. And he tried to do it away from me because I think he was oh, – now I'm telling all of Melbourne. Anyway, I know. I know. Most do you know how you can make that better is you just have to – Except that maybe your child is going to be mag, little magpie. Oh, don't see that. Then I was like, maybe it's emotional manipulation because it killed me when I came out and he was birthing the magpie. Well, if it wasn't emotional manipulation, I'm happy for Andrew. I think he's been absolutely yeah. worn down by propaganda and it's good that he fought back. <laughs> well, here's the thing. You wouldn't think that the propaganda could get more intense, but I was recording a episode of our footy podcast fangirls, which we stopped recording this year just because of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause you know, I couldn't, had nowhere to record it and everything in the pandemic. And um, in it, I was sent during, whilst recording this, I was sent a surprise video, a surprise, a surprise um, video from someone who was going to be a part of my baby shower. And the girls, Brody and Amy said, we've just got a little, we've got today's, surprise baby shower video for you and they texted it to me and uh it was richo oh my god (laughs) your new best friend maddie richo richardson (laughs) he's my best friend see now i have the proof yeah i was crying because i'm so emotional at the moment i was like i cannot believe i'm crying over richo sending me a like a you know a little message for the baby but it was so sweet and uh very kind of him to do it I we've got a mutual friend so I think she was the person who was able to kind of step in and um and and ask Richard to send me this video but in it he uh it features his new little baby as well but in it he's like you know congratulations and um hopefully we can take tigers from 100,000 members to 200,000 members with this new edition I don't know how many kids he thinks I'm going to have but with this (laughs) with this new edition and uh and then he, he even checks in with his babies like yeah should it be a should she be a tiger yep yep definitely so it's <gasps> that's it. you know can't wait for this new tiger club and I showed it to Andrew and I was like that is it I was like <laughs> Richo says God. our child is going to be a tiger cub that's it it's done well who's gonna maybe if Richo bought her a membership like Richo can pay for the first membership. Okay, so it's not that enough. Might be the, We've got Richo on for Radiothon. He subscribed to Triple R. Oh, he sent me a baby video. Now we're going to put pressure on him to buy my child. <laughs> Sarah, what do, what do best friends do for each other? <laughs> you know? He's your best friend. I, like to me, you know, yeah. it's a no. It's a no brainer. Andrew's going to have to wheel out Nathan Buckley. I think. <laughs> I think, <laughs> I think so. Like, unless you can get Sav Rocker to send you a video. <laughs> oh, but it's such a gosh, that's the image of Andrew 
in the in his little magpie, it will um, keep me going for the rest of the week. What a beautiful bad. thing! I feel bad that I've told everyone now because I, no, I, I feel no, it's, it's very sweet and um, it's very sweet and beautiful. You're the bad person that's in this, so you know. Um, yeah, but you are. Um, I guess you've got to go have a baby soon. Oh, I do. Really? So that probably uh, I, I, there. This does mean that this um, this baby shower is leading to me having a child, and it's due in six weeks, which is kind of extraordinary because I feel like n- no one has seen this pregnancy. It feels mm. like a secret one, uh, mm. but that means that I'm going to be going on maternity leave for oh, a word from the show. I know uh, something that I is a fully new concept to me. So I just wanted to maybe let listeners know today too that we're all going on holidays on the 9th of October, the three of us for a week, post mm-hmm. radio on, and then that I'm not going to be coming back after that for another few months till the new year. So but very exciting though that um, out on the patios, Montebi is going to fill in for you, which yeah. I am – so excited about bloody love mon Mm. yeah yeah it's really cool so i'm going to finish up on the 9th of october with you guys i'll be back in the new year but mon's going to be stepping in and uh uh you know like it i'm sure everyone's so familiar with what she does and out on the patio and it'll be so lovely to hear on breakfast as well and Mm. fun fact me and mon went to the same primary school (gasps) that's it yeah so same year she's a bit younger than me but our our primary okay more tenuous then <laughs> it's um, it's pretty exciting. We're, yeah, yeah, pumped about it. So, what we've got like it's two more weeks. I'm leaving for, hey, it's exciting that I'm going on. Yeah, that's exciting. Yeah, you're off to have a baby. Yeah, yeah. that is exciting. Uh, but sad that we've only got a couple more weeks left together. So let let's in, in, enjoy it exactly. Um, and uh, play some tunes, Smithy. Just mean that I get a home run for the um for the quiz until I leave. Oh, Absolutely not. What? No. <laughs> this is your final chance to step up. Triple R. This week, the Victorian Minister for Creative Industries, Martin Foley, announced a series of support and rescue packages for the state's live music industry, one of the sector's first and hardest hit by the pandemic and under the roadmap to recovery, said to be among the last to return to COVID-safe operation. On the line to discuss the funding amid months of shutdowns is Minister for Creative Industries in the Andrews Government, Martin Foley. Welcome to Breakfasters. Thank you very much. It's an honour to be here. Uh, live music in Victoria is a $1.7 billion industry and we famously boast more venues per capita than anywhere else in the world. What is the lifeline and how do you anticipate it will help? Uh, well, you hit the nail on the head. Uh, the nature of the music industry was so exposed to the pandemic and when the closures hit in March, like you say, venues and all that goes with it were amongst the first to close and on the map to recovery will sadly be amongst the last that reopen. So this package seeks to reflect a few of the different key points that the music industry put to us that needed uh, support. The first of those is the first tranche of 106 venues uh, that get support for all sorts of things, meeting cash flow, developing COVID-safe reopening plans uh, and supporting just the solvency of these businesses so that the heartbeat of the music industry, those hundreds of venues right around the state, can continue on. Uh, The second bit was uh, support for everyone involved, both up on stage and behind stage, to keep them engaged either through trading, through creating new work, uh, support for all sorts of opportunities for those roadies, musicians, promoters, techs, a lot to keep their nose above water in these difficult times, particularly noting that the job keeper and job seeker arrangements were almost designed to exclude the nature of those, the original gig-based uh, economy workers because uh, it just was designed almost to exclude them. The third part was a lot of the people who uh, rent or own and owe money to the banks for these venues are at risk for their businesses. And they were, because of these 
places in which they're located, there were lots of developers sticking around. And we want to make sure that those venues and precincts are secure for the long term. So we'll be changing, in fact, we are changing the statewide planning scheme to allow local councils to nominate either precincts or specific venues, uh, places of significance for the live music industry, recognising their cultural, social and economic contribution, thereby uh, laying down a level of protection that should protect those venues who are at risk from predatory behaviour by... Uh, marauding developers. And the fourth element was we brought forward the LGBTIQ events program from 2021 to bring it forward now so as to invite uh, groups right around the state to develop their pride program for now and next year, be that hopefully in the real tactile world, but at least in the digital world. So put all that together, that was a $13 million package that um, the industry, musicians and everyone who surrounds the sector told us was desperately needed to keep the sector going. Can you uh, drill down a little bit into who was consulted in devising the package? Uh, Yep. Uh, So there was a lot of discussions with all sorts of groups. Um, uh, Music Victoria all sorts of groups such as the Association of Artist Managers, Arts Access Victoria, APRO AMCOS, Australian Festivals Association, Independent Record Labels Association and lots of groups such as Regional Arts Victoria who speak on behalf of so many of the regional venues as well as groups that have emerged such as Crew Care uh, who look after the wellbeing and support for lots of the techos and others, and as well as making sure that uh, the Indigenous and First Peoples musicians through um, Songlines, Aboriginal Music Corporation and others, and in terms of young people, uh, groups like The Push and others that are out there advocating for young and emerging musicians. Um, With others. With the funding that's still left available, who can it, who's can apply for that funding and um, how easy is it? Because, I mean, as an artist myself, and I'm also thinking of people, you know, various other, you know, running a business trying to kind of keep their head above water, the idea of applying for a grant is a bit overwhelming. Um, so, it's, yeah, what's the process like? Is and, um, and, you know, is there kind of hoops do you need to jump through in the application process? Look, look, there is. If you're a venue, it's a bit more of a hoops to jump through because we want to use this not just to keep venues going, but we want to make the venues better and safer. So we want to make sure that venues have, for instance, sexual safety plans so particularly women don't face the kind of harassment that sadly sometimes went with so much of the sector. We want to make sure that artists are paid first. So sign up to the One Music Code to make sure that operators operate when they come back in a much better way. And we want to make sure that uh, things like WorkSafe standards and those things are at the forefront of how the sector is going to come back. We want it to come back better. That's for businesses, for individual artists. Uh, the Victorian Music Industry Recovery Program tries to make it as as less bureaucratic as possible. Um, that's why we're working with particular peak groups, such as uh, the Arts Access for Disabled Musicians and Artists, to make sure that they're supported. But if you go to, it's on the front page of www.creative.vic.gov.au, you'll see the links on the front page um, there's always a balance, but we try to make it particularly for artists uh, as less traumatic as we possibly can. Um, Martin, the Save Our Scene campaign announced in June that uh, 40% of live music venues were likely to close in Victoria by the end of the year without government support or without being able to hold 
live music events again. And we saw something similar in a national report that was released yesterday from the Australian Live Music Business Council, who said that 70% of venues are fearing that they won't survive, and that's nationally, mind you, uh, without more support, more funding, uh, and without being able to hold live events. As you said when you came into the interview, these particularly music venues are probably going to be one of the very last businesses that are going to be able to function um, on the current roadmap out of out of COVID. I'm just wondering what the government's plans are for, for a roadmap for these venues to be able to function viably. So um, many of them survive on small margins. That's the kind of the nature of the entertainment industry. And to be able to function viably, they need to be able to have maximum capacity in these rooms. So what's your vision to be able to get these venues open and functioning as soon as possible? So making sure that when we do reopen, we stay reopened, is the first uh, goal. And making sure that the prospects of not yo-yoing in and out of uh, opening and closing, as we've seen particularly in the Northern Hemisphere at the moment, is the kind of scenario that we are at all costs determined to avoid. So the careful, cautious reopening in a COVID-safe way is the goal. What we're working on at the moment is what can we do with venues, what can we do with artists and creators and all sorts to use the fact that we are coming into the warmer months to support venues to do all sorts of things where possible, uh, move outside, uh, small-scale support for ventilation. All the experts tell us that um, the part of the COVID-safe plan is clearly density issues, so there's going to have to be some support there. And then for festivals and those kind of things, what do we do to make sure that they can open safely with support from insurance plans that's really hard to get at the moment, uh, support for all sorts of measures that at least allow a restart to happen? You're right, margins are always tight and they're going to be really tight uh, as we reopen. But we've got to get some activity, some safe activity, uh, some sustainably safe activity, so we can start the comeback. And uh, this this contribution of $30 million is the first tranche of that. We know there's a lot more to do. And do you think there'll be consultation then with uh, maybe count local councils? Because I think you think of like a push to outdoor events. In the past, that's been very difficult for live music venues in Melbourne in particular because they're dealing with noise restrictions, licensing restrictions. Would you, will they, do you anticipate more collaboration then um, with local councils or some assistance to allow venues to be able to have more flexibility in that sense? Yes. There's already been very good talks with lots of local councils about removing some of that um, burden that would hold back, whether it's a, they'll be relatively small scale, but lots of them, uh, when it comes to everything from licensing, uh, noise levels and opportunities around how uh, events can operate a lot more easily outside than they've historically been able to. You know, it's always a risk in Melbourne with weather, uh, but if we want to be serious about kick-starting this sector, we've got to be able to take a few risks and support venues, musicians, promoters, and all of the diversity of the performance sectors to come back because so much of the support, particularly from the Commonwealth level, has uh, almost sought to go around them and this sector has really struggled during this pandemic because it's so important to the cultural vibrancy of Melbourne and Victoria. Uh, it's, it's up to us all to make sure that they come back in a way that uh, reflects the best of them but is able to be safely and sustainably delivered. What's, uh, what's been the response so far to this announcement from venue owners and musicians and the broader music ecology? Oh, look, the uh, first 106 venues are pretty happy. Um, I've had feedback from lots who have, you know, on Sunday, one particular operator in Footscray, the Pride Bar, uh, a relatively new venue, essentially uh, made it pretty clear that this is the difference between that venue staying open and saving 17 jobs and closing. 
and you multiply that pretty small venue across a lot of others, all the way up to, you know, the Totes and the Theatre Royal, Castlemaine, lots of venues. Um, that's, that's been positive, but we know that sort of work with some of the peaks, like the artists, managers, groups, Arts Access, APRA, AMCO, the Festival Association, that by working with them as part of this package, we can uh, multiply out the, the support and work for so many the actual topology of creatives, venue managers, bookers, technicians, crew, the whole lot. We want to make sure that not only are we supporting them, but we're supporting their well-being, which is why groups like Crew Care, um, who look after the mental health and support for so far over 500 crew members within the live music industry in Victoria, keep people in the best possible shape for the reopening. And um, it's a, that's why that's good. And I'm particularly pleased with the Songlines Aboriginal Music Corporation project to make sure that First Peoples are at the heart of this recovery as well because that's a sector of the music industry that is... Uh, and the wider community that has really copped it hard in the last little while. Um, when things reopen, where are we going to see you rocking out? <laughs> um, well, I live very close to, uh, nothing to do with this, but I live very close to a tiny little venue, uh, a, a very tiny little venue in Elwood uh, that's got a little bit of support. But I look forward to walking up to St Kilda to the Mimo or to any number of others, and then stroll them home again. That's the <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all? Well, uh, for more details about funding and initiatives, you can head to creative.vic.gov.au. And uh, we've been speaking with Victoria's Minister for Creative Industries, Martin Foley. Thanks very much, Martin. Thanks very much, Rex. See you soon. Melbourne's own Triple R. You've been listening to a podcast, The Best Bits of the Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website.